Listeners, start your engines. supplied with a false idol to stop you from tearing down this corrupt podcast. Let me tell you the truth about Crooked Table from the words of its creator and host, Robert Yanis Jr. Franchise Detours, episode 35. Rob here. The bane here, I suppose. On this episode, <laughs> I can't. I'm already. I'm fighting a cough. I can't do that any longer. On this episode, film critic Richard Newby joins us to discuss 2012's *The Dark Knight Rises*, the finale of Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy, and the finale of this mega series. As always, you can find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, and other podcatchers, as well as crookedtable.com. Go ahead and give us a rating and review wherever you are listening to this. Uh, I also wanted to note that this episode was recorded before the announcement of James Gunn and Peter Safran's appointment to DC Studios. Uh, So just know that don't flood my inbox with pissed off emails, even though you might anyway. Um... This was recorded prior to uh, Black Adam's release, prior to the potential for direction uh, going forward uh, with the DC Comics slate of films. For now, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then jump into our conversation about The Dark Knight Rises. There's a storm coming. You sound like you're looking forward to it. I'm adaptable. What are you? I'm Gotham's reckoning. must be more severe. Do you think he's coming back? I don't know. Why would you run, Bane? You should be as afraid of him as I am. I won't bury you. I've buried enough members of the Wayne family. don't owe these people anymore. You've given them everything. Not everything. Not yet. 
My mother warned me about getting into cars with strange men. This isn't a car. Welcome to Franchise Detours, where we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. On this episode, we are taking our third and final trip to Christopher Nolan's Gotham City in 2012's The Dark Knight Rises, and I am honored to welcome to the show Richard Newby. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So so tell people a little bit about who you are and everything you have going on. I know you write for a bunch of different outlets at the moment. Yeah, I do. Uh, so I usually, you know, I, I write stuff in the in the comic book movie and horror space um, for THR, Fangoria, uh, AV Club, Inverse. Uh, so you know all the all the cool you know Marvel DC coverage and then a bunch of of, of horror stuff as well. So that's kind of my my beat uh, at the moment. But yeah, I, I I love franchises. Franchises is really something that I'm. You know, I've always been drawn to and interested in, you know, ever since I became a, a movie fan as a kid. So I'm excited to to be on this podcast. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, likewise, obviously, uh, this this podcast kind of sprung organically from just me doing uh, monthly episodes on Star Wars and Harry Potter uh, in the two years prior to this on my other show. And then I was just like, well, you know what, I should just do a whole show on franchises. And this has been a, a bunch of fun. So obviously one first of all i want to mention i know you you said you have a uh, collection of short stories out there do you want to maybe plug that now too yeah i do so um i have a collection of horror short stories uh called we make monsters here uh and that's available um on amazon uh both in uh digital uh kindle format and in paperback um and the link is also uh on my twitter bio my twitter handle is at richard l newby Excellent. So you mentioned, obviously, you're a big fan of superheroes and franchises. What was the character that that first brought you into that world? Was it Batman? Because for me, it was the 89 Batman. That was like probably a, one of those big pivotal movies for for me as a kid. What was what was it for you? It was definitely Batman. Um, I was I was born in 89. So I didn't get to see that movie until I was older. But really, it was Batman, the animated series. Um which used to show on Cartoon Network when I was a kid. And I remember just like coming home from school every day and watching that, you know, episode block of Batman the Animated Series followed by Superman the Animated Series. And that really just like gave me my love of of superheroes. Um, you know, it was just like the fact that it was a cartoon, but it was also, you know, like so dark. And some of the episodes were actually like, you know, kind of scary for for a kid, you know. Uh, the the villains and stuff like I remember the the Two Face origin episode and the Clayface origin episode were like two of my favorites. Um, you know, I was a I was a big monster kid. I like loved Universal horror monsters and those black and white movies. Um, and so that kind of felt like Batman kind of felt like an extension of that. Uh, so it was like very easy for me to like kind of like wrap my head around these like tragic monstrous figures that have kind of been like scarred or disfigured in some like terrible way uh but also kind of just like steeped in this like noric aesthetic you know which i i didn't understand you know that term at the time but just like you know the 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 mood of it i think just like really you know caught my attention and made me really interested uh in batman uh and then from there you know like i i think the 90s were a great time for 
action figures. You know, it was I didn't I didn't grow up having video games, so like action figures were like my main source of entertainment for myself. And like there were so many cool Batman action figures, you know, during those times from from Kenner and stuff. Uh, so that definitely you know, enhanced my appreciation too. Uh, and so like by the time I started like reading comic books when I was in, you know, grade school, I was already, you know, deeply invested in, in Batman and his whole world. Yeah. I, I love what you said, first of all, about those two shows, the Batman and Superman shows, because I, we're right now in the midst of a weird place for, for Warner brothers in DC and, the DCEU is sort of constantly kind of cycling through what what the hell they're they're trying to do, and it feels yeah. like they're just stuck in this like perpetual state of infancy, of like assembling yeah. the universe. And meanwhile, those animated shows they did back in the '90s did it so well, where you know they had crossovers with Batman and Superman. They had the Justice League series and the Justice League Unlimited after that, and and they did it so seamlessly while capturing both the accessibility of these shows for kids and those characters, but also where, you know, adults watch those shows now and it still holds up as a, as a piece of art, as a piece of entertainment in, in that genre. And I love that you, you brought up Universal Monsters because Batman is, is what really kind of set him apart is that he weaponizes a lot of that iconography and uses it against the villains, which is a, a theme that this trilogy does particularly well. So, just to set the stage for this one, I, I mean, we're going to acknowledge up front, Nolan was put in kind of an impossible situation with this film. Uh, obviously, The Dark Knight was a, a cultural phenomenon. And and uh, after the death of Heath Ledger, particularly, they, the whole big question was, what are they going to do with the next one? Uh, still end up earning over a billion dollars. It runs two hours and 45 minutes or so. So clearly he had sort of an epic scope in mind. You, you, you see that right up front with the the aircraft sequence. What were your thoughts going into The Dark Knight Rises as far as expectations? And did they make the right call by not referencing the Joker whatsoever? Uh, I, I was so hyped going into The Dark Knight Rises. Like, it was probably like one of my like most hyped movie experiences. Uh, I, I, I love The Dark Knight. Like, it came out at the perfect time. Like, it was right at the end of high school before I started college. And I feel like I probably saw it like 12 times in theaters that summer. Uh, <laughs> You know, and, and when it came out on DVD, like it was like constantly watched in the dorm rooms. Like it was very much like the college movie of that of that time. So, you know, Dark Knight Rises came out at the end of college too. And so, you know, everybody was just like so hyped about it because like we had built it into this like cultural experience. Uh and so, you know, I I I really, you know, love the movie. Um you know, I, I understand some of the some of the criticisms, but um, you know, I, I think it's 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 tough to beat the Dark Knight. It's tough to beat like any film that has the Joker as the central villain because it, he is such a compelling character. Um, you know, but for me, like the Dark Knight Rises is kind of like Nolan's take on Bond. Uh, you know, in, in some ways, um, but I think it's also like kind of an interesting place because it feels like. It feels like it's more of a sequel to Batman Begins than The Dark yes, Knight. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and in part because it doesn't reference the Joker. Um, and, you know, I, I was kind of hoping that they would, like, mention, like, the Joker being, like, locked, locked up somewhere. Um, but, you know, I, I understand, you know, why they didn't. Um, and, you know, why they, you know, after, after Heath Ledger's passing, why they didn't, you know, kind of want to, you know, re... Uh, 
you know, reinvent that character, bring him back with a different actor, you know, reference him in some way. Cause I feel like it was such an important part of kind of the phenomenon of that film and, and of Ledger's legacy. Um, so like as a, as a Batman fan, like, yeah, I would have loved like, you know, this final Nolan Christian Bale movie to like, at least have like one scene with the Joker. But at, at the same time, like I understand why I didn't. Yeah, it's just jarring coming into this when the Dark Knight ends with uh, Joker getting, you know, getting apprehended and obviously dangling upside down. We're, I think you and I are destined to do this forever. And then the next film, you know, doesn't reference him whatsoever. The thing with, with that from that film that does carry over is Harvey Dent's uh, death and and the the impact that the the big lie set at the the end of Dark Knight has on uh, Gotham City. So I do I agree with you that it. It does, other than that fact, other than, than the Dent Act, it does feel way more tonally in line with Batman Begins. It's it's cool to finally see the, the League of Shadows plan kind of pay off in a big way. Uh, like I said, that aircraft sequence, that's like the kind of stunt work we see now only if, if Tom Cruise is involved, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy, like, looking back at that, at that sequence and just, like, the fact that it was done practically you know, and in a superhero movie, like we're not seeing that kind of stuff, you know, outside of, of Nolan really in these like, and in, in Tom Cruise and, you know, the recent Top Gun movie, like, but in superhero movies, like we're really kind of not seeing that. Uh, and like, there's just like a, you know, a, a physicality to it. There's a weight to that opening scene because it is, you know, uh, a real stunt. Um, and I, I really do feel like it's, it's Nolan's Bond opening. Uh, you know, it's a, it's an awesome yeah. sequence. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And there were all those rumors around this time of, of Nolan wanting to do Bond or, right? I believe so. I think that yeah. was either right around this before or after, because uh, I know that's something that keeps popping up, sort of Tenet is kind of like an, another kind of him writing the uh, the Bond aesthetic a bit. Yeah, yeah. There was like a big rumor at the time that uh, he was going to do Bond with Tom Hardy, uh, you know, following this movie. but. Yeah, I feel like it's interesting because he like kind of does it with Dark Knight Rises and Tenet. I feel like he kind of gets his like, you know, bond in. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So going in, this is uh, like we're sort of alluding to this is because the Dark Knight was such a big thing going into this. It was one of those prime examples of fans kind of writing their own version of what this movie was going to be in their head 6,000 times sure. before they saw it. So there were all these rumors I remember in between those two films of, oh, it's maybe it'll be the Riddler and they'll bring the Riddler into it. Or maybe it'll be, you know, there was a big, like the Philip Seymour Hoffman, this penguin rumor that was kind of circulating around that time. Uh, yeah. It was, I remember like, um, and DiCaprio was rumored to be the, the Riddler. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the Catwoman thing makes sense because Catwoman, other than Joker, is like the most recognizable Batman villain and also ha has that sort of cosmic connection with him that you see so so beautifully depicted in Batman Returns that they are sort of mirrors of the same person a lot. And more recently in the Batman. Uh, yeah. What it, at the time, and I guess now looking back, what are, what are your thoughts on Bane as the choice of villain? Because it it's it is sort of like they were taking a character who kind of got the X Men Origins Deadpool treatment in Batman and, and Robin, uh, and like how do we how do we reinvent him and have him be like at least somewhat closer to the comic book version? 
Yeah, I was really glad that we were getting uh, a, a new version of, of Bane that wasn't like a Poison Ivy minion. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, we didn't talk. Because I feel like, you know, Bane is like this, you know, Machiavellian genius uh, in the comics. So it was cool to actually like see that play out and then also kind of tie back into Roz and, and Lisa, League of Shadows and, and Talia and all that. Um, and I think, you know, Tom Hardy is, a, is an incredible actor. And I mean, that that voice was, is just like already like so iconic. Like it's tough to be, you know, Ledger's Joker in terms of like being iconic, but I feel like, you know, what Tom Hardy did with that voice, I think like really kind of like changed the perception of Bane and pop culture. And I mean, like mm. ever since then, like the, the Lego movies, the Harley Quinn show on HBO max, like video games, they've all kind of like adopted that Hardy voice, yeah. uh, which, which is really interesting. It's like a decade of people doing their own version of the Bane. Like it's become an expression yeah. that everyone can do now, basically. Yeah. Prize. <laughs> um, yeah, no, you're, you're so right. It's interesting because Joker, obviously the theme of the Dark Knight is chaos. And this one is pain and having Bane be a character that tests him like in multiple different ways. Not only is it more physically imposing presence because the Joker is not, not known for hand-to-hand combat per se. Right. Um, and having that be the, uh, be what Bane brings to the table, but then also, you know, like you said, the sort of Machiavellian side of uh, mastermind part of it that, that he brings as the an emissary for the League of Shadows. And uh, not only does Hardy have that presence, he's got those insanely expressive eyes that really are all you need to sell that character. Yeah. That when he has that, the when he's reading the letter, Gordon's letter, or when he's addressing like, take back your city and all of that stuff, like, it's you're just locked in like you forget that the rest of the movie is happening because you're just locked in with his performance it's so mesmerizing and then it still has that sort of dark humor to it in places where which i which i really appreciate upon this rewatch yeah he's definitely like has a sense of humor and is kind of funny which i think you know is it i think it's interesting because i think you know so often in terms of like looking back on these batman movies and like looking at how it kind of like changed, you know, franchises in terms of how they, you know, rebooted and went for a more grounded approach. Like, I think that a lot of people forget the humor across the three Nolan films. Like there's some really genuinely funny moments that aren't just like, you know, cheeky winks towards the audience. Like the it's humor that comes from, you know, a, a place of character and each one is kind of like unique to that character, uh, which I think is, is really fun to see. And it's something that I think that people don't talk about enough, uh, in terms of what Nolan brought to, to the Batman franchise. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I love that his ethos that he is in some ways sort of cut from the same cloth as Bruce. Cause they're both, uh, they both studied under Ra's al Ghul as we saw in Batman begins. And so they're, there's sort of like it's kind of two sides of the same coin in a way. And I think that's, you know, we get that most directly during the, the, the confrontation with the two of them, the first fight scene, the, the one where he breaks Batman, uh, yeah. which, which is obviously sort of inspired by the nightfall storyline, but also he, there's that whole sequence where he's like, Oh, you know, you, you adopted the dark. Like, I was born in it, molded by it and all that, which I, I what do you think of the, the, the philosophical sort of conundrum that Bane confronts Batman with as far as not only the sort of the motive of the League of Shadows, which is the, all the foundation for that is there in that first film, but also uh, the whole idea of 
uh, hope being really the, the, the poison that, that leads to ultimately much m- more suffering for him when that in the jail with the, the television where he's watching Gotham sort of struggle on the news with the uh, Gotham itself and the, the idea of the trigger man, this mysterious Gotham citizen. What are your, what are your thoughts on how that the, the, uh, the psychological warfare kind of at play? Yeah, I, I, I really like that aspect. Um, you know, I think it's it's really interesting now, like especially from a contemporary standpoint of kind of like looking at the League of Shadows plan uh, and kind of like looking at, you know, Gotham as this place of corruption that, you know, can't truly be fixed. And like Batman is just kind of like a Band-Aid over the situation. And I feel like that's like a really mature take on, you know, not only Batman, but like comic book superheroes like what are they actually you know doing in society like are they actually changing it or are they just like you know preventing progress ultimately or for like you know the natural decline the fall of the the roman empire you know in in some ways and so i feel like bane really like kind of takes batman to that place and forces him to question his role you know as protector of Gotham, which I think is, is really cool. And I think that, you know, leaving him in that, in that pit. And so that Batman is, you know, basically like reborn, you know, it's, it's the metaphor of the Lazarus pit, which I think is really interesting rather than like the, the literal comic interpretation. Um, But it's also, you know, goes back to that whole, like Thomas Wentz, you know, why do we fall? And I think that that's like so beautifully woven in, uh, you know, it, it really feels like there's so many like elements of symmetry, you know, particularly between Dark Knight Rises and Batman Begins that I really appreciate. Uh, and so like, it's basically, you know, like Bruce is, you know, finding his purpose as Batman again. Uh, and, you know, I think that part of that purpose comes with the idea that like he, he has to, to sacrifice something and that also you know, it kind of breaks this comics idea that, you know, Batman, you know, Bruce Wayne is, you know, ultimately like the best answer to be Batman. And like everybody else is kind of like, even if they replace him temporarily, they're somewhat, you know, inferior. And so this kind of like breaks that down. It's like, you know, maybe I'm not what's best for the city. And maybe this like role is not what's best for me. Maybe it's not healthy, you know, to hold on to this role you know, Batman is kind of like this shared ideal. Uh, and I think that the film like really tackles that in terms of like symbols. And so, you know, the, the league of shadows becomes the symbol and the fire rises, you know, their, their chant is symbolic, but then also the bat signal itself, you know, becomes this kind of graffiti art that, you know, stirs people to kind of rise, uh, you know, rise up for themselves. And so it's, it's kind of like this Batman becoming this like shared identity, which I feel like is really, is really interesting. And, you know, I think really came at a, came at a point of time where I think that, you know, some of the political significance, like didn't necessarily like land at that point in time, but I think it lands harder now. I'm glad you said that. Cause that was one of the notes I had is that this, this thing aged so well. I mean, I remember this, this came out, I think, when like the the whole thing with the one percent that was like a big thing in the news. Yeah. And now, after January sixth, then sort of the current political landscape, 
the uh, the notion that a terrorist would come into the city and uh, and under the guise of empowering its citizens to reclaim it, their you know their their city and their freedoms and all this other stuff it it really <laughs> it really struck a chord uh much more so i think just looking at it now and i like and i love what you said about uh bruce wayne and the ideal of batman because we see in this in this movie what we did not think we would ever see, which was set up in Batman Begins, which is he's like, you know, I'll be there as long as it takes. Like, I just want to create this to create a symbol of change. And in this film, we actually it, it kind of explores the idea. Well, what does what does Bruce Wayne do after Batman? Is Bruce Wayne the beginning and end of Batman or does Batman transcend uh, transcend him? Like, how does this does the city still need its protector or not? And that's kind of a question it raises. And uh, it, it is all about myth. Like you can see that throughout, like the the legend of the child who escaped the pit. Like it, it's a major theme throughout the story. And I love that it ends essentially on Batman becoming this legendary figure where there's a, a statue of him in wherever City Hall or whatever that was. And uh, the, with, the, with the hint of, you know, that legacy continuing. Yeah. And it's like, it's a really cool idea as well because, I I like the fact that Nolan, you know, he does make this film like feel like a conclusion because I think that part of the reason why Bruce Wayne has continually, you know, been Batman, we have all these reasons for him to to stay as Batman is just because of the publishing industry. You know, like people buy Batman books to read Bruce Wayne as Batman. And so, you know, even though they'll switch it up sometimes and, you know, Dick Grayson's Batman for a while. They get to a little bit of a sales boost. Like Bruce Wayne always comes back and as Batman because comics are an ongoing, you know, story. And I feel like Bruce Wayne will always be Batman, you know, as long as the the comic is running because it's a never concluding story. But with this, like it does have a conclusion. And so I feel like, you know, Nolan really had to like consider the the emotional and physical weight of like what Bruce was carrying in this role and also like how to continue the concept of Batman without, you know, continually saying like, well, this guy is like must punish himself and be in this like unhealthy mental place. Cause I think that we can all agree that like Batman, like in terms of the, the comic book, you know, he's not like a very healthy person. And part of that is just like, how the character has evolved because they continually like need to use Bruce. And so the reason for his continued existence is that, well, you know, he's, he's not a well individual, but I feel like, you know, Nolan does something really interesting. He's like, well, what if he can heal? You know, what if he's not fighting this never ending crusade over the loss of his parents, but like sees something, sees Batman as something bigger than kind of just like his own personal, warfare yeah yeah no that makes sense uh, one of the big i think sticking points that a lot of people including myself to a degree have with this movie is the eight year time jump uh that we essentially get two movies of batman sort of uh, starting to protect gotham facing off against you know ra's al ghul and the joker and then there's a like, almost decade jump long into his him his retirement and then he reemerges in this film. Do you do you think that approach was a, a satisfying way to end the trilogy? Because I kind of my I have issues with it 
one hand because it, it gives weight to what the the sacrifice at the end of the, of the Dark Knight. So I appreciate that. But on the other hand, it makes the story, it makes this one feel like an epilogue to what the story the other two were were telling initially. So this feels like there's a little bit of disconnect. Does that does that do you feel that as well? Or does Yeah, I do. I wish that, you know, I wish that even if they had done a a time jump, like I wish that he had continued to be Batman and, and like, you know, maybe there were some stories that we didn't see, you know, other villains that could have been referenced, but like yeah, the idea that we like don't see him from like, you know, eight years at the end of the Dark Knight to the Dark Knight Rises is kind of like an odd choice because really, you know, he was Batman for like a year and a half, yeah. <laughs> you know, total. Yeah, exactly. uh, <laughs> which is always like kind of like a, a weird thing when you think about like the, the timeline of those of those films. Um, so like I, I definitely like understand like why they kind of wanted to do a kind of like Dark Knight Returns approach with the character. Cause there is a certain weight to like saying, you know, an older Bruce Wayne who has kind of like lost hope and it also fits into the whole theme of of pain. Um but yeah, I, I, I do wish that, you know, the the retirement had I guess there had been a, a bridge in there somewhere, at least, you know, at least evidence that like other stories and adventures had happened that we may not have seen, but like he was Batman for, you know, many years before we get to this point. Right. Like unconfirmed sightings, maybe after he, he takes off yeah. the bat pot at the end of the dark night. And yeah. And then in here, there's like, Oh, in between movies, he faced off against Riddler and such and such. Right. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's also, it's also strange because like we said, he, he goes into hiding at the end of the dark night he co- eight years pass. His his body is you know muscles kind of atrophy and all that other stuff because he's just hanging out in Wayne Manor, which I think it's I think it's reasonable or at least understandable, plausible that Bruce Wayne would become a shut in if he felt like Rachel was his one ticket to a real life and he lost that. So I I, I buy that. Uh, that that is not a, a huge leap for me. What is weird is that he comes out of retirement for like a day and a half, faces off against Bane. Uh, and then is then we're another time jump of a few months where he comes back for like I don't know twelve hours or whatever, and then and then he's gone again. So it's like it's this weird back and forth. And most annoyingly of all, I feel like Bale is kind of lost amidst this movie in a way. I feel like the scope of this film, it, you know, I, the people make a bit a lot of a lot of uh, you know. There's a lot of talk of Batman Begins being really like the first Batman movie about Bruce Wayne. And I I feel like this is, but it's also, I don't know. I feel like maybe there's so much going on that dilutes a lot of what we were saying at like kind of the emotional journey that character goes on. Yeah. It's one of those movies that like, I I feel like would have benefited from being a two part movie, uh, kind of like what, what, what WB had done with, with Harry Potter. Cause there is so much there and like all of it is interesting and all of it is fascinating and, you know, Nolan is really trying to, like, build this epic. But, yeah, at the same time, like, I do think that there are issues in terms of, like, the timing of things and just, like, his relationship with, with Talia and then, like, leading directly into his relationship with Selena, you know, after being devastated by the news of, of Rachel. Like, it's, like, a very, like, quick, you know, yeah, jump to, like, several different women, you know, as part of his recovery. In a very short amount of time. Uh, so, yeah, I definitely think that, you know, some, uh, a, a two-parter could have done more to kind of 
refocus it on on Bruce Wayne and Batman and his journey because I do think that you know Batman gets a little bit overshadowed by Bane in this movie. Um, yeah, and I think that's kind of like been one of the main challenges for Batman movies in general is that like the villains also often end up becoming more compelling than, than Batman himself on screen. Yeah. There's so, I mean, look at this rogues gallery. It's legendary. So many colorful characters. It's hard. It's hard to not let that be the case. I think you have to weigh tone those characters down in order to, to, for that not to happen. Even in, in the Batman, I feel like they do a good job of doing that by, I don't know, kind of stripping those characters of, of the sort of, Comic, comic bookiness, uh, uh, you know, the stylisticness, uh, the stylistic nature of those characters. Like Riddler's not wearing a big green suit covered in question marks and, and yeah. you know, saying, Riddle me this. They subdued the villains more down to Batman's level. So you're like, okay, they all coexist in the same place. Yeah, for sure. Uh, y- you mentioned Talia, obviously. So that was, I think, probably if you were if you were following all this stuff when it was happening, the worst kept secret <laughs> yeah. in in film journalism because there were shots of her like dressed yeah. in, in that. It was, that, it was yeah. very early. It was like impossible to to hide uh, who she was playing. So yeah, that, yeah. that twist like wasn't really much of a twist by the time the movie came out. Exactly. Uh, we we talked about Bane and how charismatic he is. Obviously, in this movie, first of all, I feel like his death is very sudden and sort of unsatisfying, and Talia's is as well. Uh, but we were saying about how you know Tom Hardy is so great in this movie, and he's presenting a Bane that is not necessarily a henchman, but then it's kind of revealed that he sort of is with Talia. What is your what is your take? Do you think that undermines the character of Bane at all as presented in this movie? I like the idea that he was like kind of like her protector. Uh, you know, and that he he did have some like sense of of love for her. Um, you know, I, I did like that aspect. I thought that was kind of interesting, just because like in the in the comics too, Razagul like looked at at Bane as like a possible like suitor for Talia after you know Batman turned him down, uh, and so it was kind of like an interesting like play on that. Uh, you know, that they had this kind of relationship that wasn't necessarily like romantic, but like, I think that there was like a clear sense of, of love there between them. Um, and so I, I did kind of like that, that connection and his connection to her past. Um, I thought that was kind of just like a fun reinvention of a, of a comic book storyline. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, I also, it's, there's another, another way in which this film mirrors Batman Begins is in that big villain twist because we get the sim- similar kind of thing in that film with Ducard not only being alive but being Ra's al Ghul and reemerging that way. D- did the Talia twist, even though you knew about it beforehand, did it did it work for you in this movie? Uh, because I I don't know. I I noticed upon rewatch that it's 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 cool. Like there's a cool Easter egg early in the film where Miranda Tate air quotes Miranda Tate. Um, is is at the charity ball and she's talking about you know the uh, the generator and about like restoring balance to the world and all that stuff and so she's basically using using the League of Shadows kind of uh, terminology in different contexts. I thought that was fun, but I don't know. I, I think I think it's because her death is so sort of unceremonious that it doesn't a hundred percent work for me. Also, the chemistry with Bale feels it doesn't feel like it's there. Do, does any of that work for you or did you have the same problem? 
Um, I, I like the reveal um, at the end and like also like kind of going back to what you were saying about mirroring Batman Begins, you know, uh, uh, Roz has this line about like the, the enemy coming up behind you and stabbing you in the back. And that's exactly what she does, you know, in, in that finale to Batman. And so I thought that, that was kind of like a, you know, a, a clever mirroring. So I really like that aspect of kind of like playing up the similarities between Talia and Roz. But yeah, I do think that the death was kind of unsatisfying. Um, yeah, especially because I feel like Talia and Bane are both like very physical adversaries. Uh, and especially like kind of when you're dealing with this movie that I do feel like revolves so much around like Bruce's physicality and like overcoming pain. Like you do kind of want to see like a bigger showdown. You know, you, you do want to see like Batman and Catwoman, you know, kind of having like a, a two against two fight against Bane and Talia uh, and something that's a little more like epic besides just like kind of like a shotgun blast and a truck crash. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely think that those were like issues that I think, you know, that, that I have with the, the movie, but I do like her characterization uh, overall. I, I do think that like Bruce falls for Miranda very quickly. Uh, yes. <laughs> Especially given, like, you know, how upset he was at, at Alfred about about Rachel. Um, but yeah, I, I, I still like that interpretation of the character. I just kind of wish that we got more of her. Right. And I think a lot of what we're getting at, it feels like, is there's a lot of good stuff in this movie. Just some of it feels a bit undercooked, which is weird for a two hour and 45 minute movie. But it, that's, it feels like the scope is just for, for this story and this character slightly unwieldy, even though they're like we're saying, there's lots of things to, to love about this film. Speaking of which, and this is sort of a good segue from talking about Talia, Anne Hathaway as Catwoman shouldn't doesn't feel like it should work because she felt like a very unlikely choice for that character at the time. But man, does, does she's one of the best things about this film. Wouldn't you agree? Oh yeah. She's, she's great. She like completely like sells the whole like femme fatale angle. Uh, you know, there's just like a certain like bitterness to her about her like station in life, but also just like, I kind of like class that you can see why Bruce is, is drawn to her. Um, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's like a really great depiction of the character. Like, I think it's, it's up there with Michelle Pfeiffer and, and Zoe Kravitz. Like, I don't think that we've had like a bad Catwoman, uh, a bad Selena Kyle <laughs> on, on film. Uh, I think she completely, you know, s sells the role. Uh, I'm glad, I'm glad you, uh, you specified Selena Kyle. Because <laughs> I was like, uh, there was another Catwoman. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Try no, no. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I, 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 yeah, she's, she's great in this movie. I think like, like I was saying, the chemistry between the two of them is really strong. And I, it's because they both have that sense of, uh, that sort of playfulness in their dynamic as well. You see during that dancing scene at the, at, I think it's also at the charity ball, which very reminds me, it's almost like they intentionally were doing an echo of Batman Returns with yeah. those two characters uh, dancing at the, the, the masquerade ball or whatever it was there. Uh, and you get those moments where she drops that facade, where she's, 
you know, the maid at the party at the beginning. And then yeah. he reveals the, the safe and she's like, oops. And then, and then Joe goes and like full Catwoman on him or in the, in the, in the bar when the cops enter and she bursts into tea, like, yeah, so good. She nails those little moments so well. Yeah. She's, she's great. Like, I feel like it's really like such an, it's such an actor's role. And I feel like, you know, Anne Hathaway is like a very versatile actress. And so I feel like this role like actually gives her a lot to play with and a lot of like dynamics to kind of play with too. Uh, which again, like makes me think of, you know, it's different from Michelle Pfeiffer's performance, but like, I feel like in Batman Returns, like it also gave the character a lot of different ways to kind of play it and these different facades and angles. And I feel like that really works uh, in the character's favor. And they find ways to take a lot of the Catwoman iconography, you know, like the cat ears with the goggles, which, you know, it, do you, does that does that work for you in context or does it feel like no one's being like so slavish with the, it has to have, be practical, it has to be grounded. What would this be like in real life? When I first heard about it and I saw the set photos, I thought it was stupid. Uh, <laughs> but then like actually seeing it in the movie, like seeing it function, it like changed my mind. I thought that was a really cool you know, reinvention that like felt very Nolan, but also like felt in line with, with the comic books. Uh, yeah. She has the the stiletto heels even sort of become a weapon and, and there's yeah. reasons behind it. I, I think it, it strikes that balance between, you know, I, I, on the first episode of this mega series, my guest and I were talking about how not only does Batman begins kind of ease you into being a comic book movie where by the end it's a microwave emitter and you got to get to the bridge before it blows and all that other stuff that this trilogy gets more comic booky as it goes. And Absolutely, so yeah. <laughs> to the point that we'll get to the finale, which is straight ripped straight out of Batman 66 in the best way possible, as everybody has pointed out in the last decade. Uh, but the, the fact that they're able to like, yeah, sure. Her goggles go up. It looks like cat ears. So she's not, cat yeah, whatever. I, I love that. In terms of like with, with Bane's pain medication too, like, yeah. you know, we don't get venom, but we still get like this, this apparatus that he needs, you know, to, to survive and kind of control his, his pain and his, his emotions. So I feel like there are some pretty like clever ways of reinventing the comic book lore that like makes it, you know, maybe a little more grounded, but it's also like still completely ridiculous. It's just kind of like, you know, Nolan's take on the ridiculous comic book nature of these things. Yeah. And you still get the two of them fighting alongside each other, uh, which is so much fun. You can still get the the really pointed moments about look how similar these two are, like the the where she disappears on him, which I know yeah. is, is happens in the comics, I think with Superman. Uh, so I, I love that, that. So that's what that feels like moment. And the fact that she's the catalyst, pun intended, for, for him to re-enter the world. It's all about that confrontation with her. And then, you know, the next day he's looking into, uh, you know, why she was dusting for Prince and all this other stuff. And I, it's that encounter that makes me, that, that makes it that much more satisfying in the end when it's the two of them together. Because it's like, oh, he already was in, like, interested in her from the jump. He was intrigued by by Selena Kyle, and so the one thing he takes is his mom's pearl necklace to give to Selena Kyle, so that they can go off and be together with the clean slate. So it all sort of fills, you know, falls into place. Yeah, I, I want to get into. Uh, <laughs> we did Joe, air quotes uh, Miranda Tate, air quotes John Blake. Uh, wh what do you what do you think he brings to this? Does the Robin twist 
going speaking to things that are more comic booky. Does the but also Nolan feeling you know obligated to make it feel like it fits his sort of naturalistic uh, approach to this character? Does that Robin twist work for you? Because I, I the idea of him being the next Dark Knight definitely works because they spend so much time if you're really paying attention to the details setting up yeah. that that he shares Bruce's sort of mentality there's even a moment uh, where he he kills a couple of uh you know goons with the gun and then tosses it aside like I don't I don't not into that anymore yeah yeah I am um, I, I really like the character of John Blake um and like I like the idea that like he's just kind of a composite of you know, the three Robins, you know, at the time, like there's aspects of Dick Grayson of Jason Todd of Tim Drake, you know, all kind of like wrapped up in this character. And so like, I kind of get like the fact that, you know, why they went with, you know, his real name as being Robin. Um, I do think that like, it probably like would have made more sense to just like, you know, say that he was like Richard Grayson, uh, you know, and that was the, that was the reveal and that he just like, didn't go by that that name just because of you know what had happened with you know his dad being involved in it and and crime and that aspect um but like it was a it was a cool it was a cool nod i think that like it was very clear from the beginning that you know he was basically like the robin character um you know i i probably would have just like gone with like the name of one of the robins instead of just like making that his his real name but you know, I I think that's like just like one of the fun, you know, Nolan-y aspects. But I really like John Blake as a as a character, and like I like the the establishment of him as the new Batman uh, at the end. Because you're right, like they do they do really like hammer that in throughout the film. Um, you know, his his detective skills and his reasoning skills, and like Batman giving him, you know, these tips that he's got to like you know protect his face. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, not for him, but for the people he cares about. Um, and there, there is something I think really compelling about Joseph Gordon-Levitt's performance uh, as well. Like, there's a little bit of of naivety to him, but also just like this determination to to root out corruption and and you know not not stand for you know cowardice or, or where Gotham is is heading like he really does feel like he kind of pushes you know everything that that Bruce kind of hoped for he kind of pushes it forward yeah he he uh he even has the partnership with Gordon by the end of the film yeah like throughout the course of this and he tosses his badge he realizes that the justice can't happen in the system like all of that all of that works for me the thing and I know that one of the Robins has this is part of his origin story uh, the the thing about him being like, I could see it in your eyes. You came to visit the orphanage. I, that always like, really? Like there's, there's a few little things in this movie like that plot contrivances. And I'm like, that there's a, a cleaner way to do that. And what always stuck in my head is that this should have been, you know, first of all, I, I 100% agree. They should have just called him, you know, Dick Grayson or one of, pick a name of one of the Robins. The fact that they tried to like, they tried to slip that, slip that in there as a, lame twist kind of like the star trek into darkness with khan and like this is a thing that movies feel like they continually have to try and do even though yeah it's it's, it doesn't make any sense within the narrative of the story i I Uh, really thought going into it that it was he was going to be the narrows kid from that's yeah exactly you you got ahead of me yeah exactly 100 go ahead go ahead continue 
Yeah, I just, you know, I thought that it made perfect sense because, like, you know, I, I thought that the ages would have lined up pretty well. And, like, Batman already gave him that yeah, grappling gun in the, in the first one. And, you know, we saw that he had abusive parents and stuff. And I feel like that would have been, like, a really, like, clean way to do that. 100%. And then that, that would have made, then I would have had no issues with that character. That would have been perfect. I agree. Uh that I'm so glad that we're in, in, in sync with that. Cause I'm the, I, I feel like I haven't really seen that a lot of places as an idea. And I think that would have, that would have connected these movies even more. So you already have the Batman begins dark Knight rises parallels. Why not just keep those going? Um, we didn't talk much about the supporting cast. And I, I think it's probably because this movie is sort of kind of, they're an afterthought in a lot of this, I feel like. And by supporting cast, I mean the returning supporting players. You have, Michael Caine, I think, has the most to do in this, and it's probably what the best performance he has in the three of them, uh, mostly because of the the scene where he tells Bruce about the letter and the the you know him sobbing at the the Wayne's gravesite, which is never not gonna as many as many issues that I might have with this movie, I, that always hits me very emotionally. Uh, all the Alfred stuff in this movie does. Yeah, Michael Caine is is terrific in this. Um... He he just like completely sells, you know, every every moment. And you just like you really feel like how much he cares for Bruce and like how much he wants him to have like a better life than what he's leading. Uh yeah, it's a it's a great performance for Michael Caine. I and similarly, I think Michael Caine makes the most of his sort of limited screen time because an hour in, he's gone until the finale, until the, the, the very end of the movie. Uh, Gary Oldman, I think, has a couple of, of really choice moments. More specifically, the the scene with Blake, where yeah. uh, Bane reads the letter and he's sort of you know explaining like you know when you when that happens, I hope you have a friend like I did to plunge their hands into the filth and all that other stuff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then the scene at the end with Bruce, which is again, Nolan is is such is, is such a master at sticking the landing that even when I'm watching this two hour and forty five minute movie, like there's moments where I'm like, uh, I, that could have been better, or this is whatever. And then, but then once it gets to that the finale with the reveal of you know Batman telling him, alluding to him being Bruce Wayne, and yeah. we got that footage for, oh, come on, yeah, love, that. yeah, that's a beautiful moment, like it. It always makes me tear up a little bit. I won't. I won't lie. Like I love that the the line about giving a scared little boy's coat and telling him that you know the world wasn't over. Yeah, I, I love that scene. Yeah, it's it's a highlight for sure. And then poor Morgan Freeman has literally nothing to do except stand around in a lot of this, which is really bummer because it's Morgan Freeman to literally to the point that when he when he goes to see him about Wayne Enterprises business. <laughs> Lucius has to sort of force his own like cue scene, like speaking of the bond metaphor or, or comparison. He's like, Oh, these, these, you know, these meetings usually end with like some strange requests. And he's like, ah, not this time. He's like, well, let me show you some stuff anyway. I want to, <laughs> I, I have to have something to do in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's definitely like kind of underutilized on this for sure. Did you, uh, what are your thoughts on the bat? The, the uh, I guess, flying version of the tumbler we get in here. I, again, I like it in concept, but I feel like the design, it doesn't really look like a bat at all to me. It looks more like a beetle. Uh, <laughs> what yeah, it, does, yeah. It's very bulky and cumbersome. It's definitely not my favorite uh, design. Uh, I, don't, I don't particularly like love the tumbler design either. 
Um, but I, 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 you know, I've, I've grown, grown to like it, but yeah, the, the bad, I just think is like too bulky and cumbersome. And like, I'm not entirely sure like what it's supposed to, to resemble. Uh, right. <laughs> like it's cool to see like Batman, you know, like in a plane, like, I mean, like that's like an iconic, you know, asset to him, but yeah, it's, it's not the best, uh, design choice. Like I think even, even if you're going to like, kind of like suspend belief and like say like, Oh, it's developed through the military. Like I still don't really see like even the military developing something that's like that bulky and boxy. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a weird step backwards. Cause I, I agree with you. I don't love the tumbler. I think it works on, it, it looked ridiculous when you see it before the movie came out, like in, you know, are in, uh, in promotional stills and stuff, but in the movie in Batman begins, I think it works. And then in the dark Knight, you get that, that, Really cool bat pod, which I think that yeah, is by far that. the standout vehicle yeah. of this trilogy. For sure. A few other things I wanted to point out that I thought were cool. Uh, Bruce has that small EMP device that turns off the cameras. I like that. Uh, Jonathan Crane as the head of the kangaroo court there. Um, <clears throat> I think that that's that's hilarious and and you know wonderful. It was always good to see Killian Murphy. Uh, do you think the score here suffers at all? The fact that James Newton Howard didn't come back. No, I don't actually. I I love the score for this one. Uh, I feel like Zimmer really like took some took some chances with it. There's some really like great stuff with like Bane's theme, the League of Shadows, and the chanting, and um, it actually like might be like my favorite soundtrack of the mm. of the three. <laughs> this music in these movies is is incredible across the board. Yeah. Uh, so I want to now. I just want to touch a base on the finale. Obviously, I was alluding to Batman the movie from 1966. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. Uh, <laughs> I I love that. I, it's like it's over the top and comic booky in the best way. When you saw this for the first time, did did you love the fact that it, it all hinged on this giant bomb? And did you think they had actually killed Batman? I, uh, I, so I did, I did love the giant bomb and I like immediately thought of, of 66 when I saw it. Um, I did think that they had killed him for a second. I did. It did cross my mind and I was like, what? I was like, I can't believe they actually did that. Like, I can't believe they actually like committed, uh, to doing that. Um, and I think that would have been like an interesting choice too, but I'm glad that they did. And I'm glad that they gave Bruce, uh, a happy ending. Yeah. It's, it. Also, seeing this movie and seeing that they sort of set up that they killed Batman and then revealed that they didn't kill Batman in a way made me kind of respect a more recent yeah, <laughs> franchise. I was just franchise. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how much. I don't know uh, how. Well, I don't know what the you know the limitation on spoilers is, but the people. <laughs> I guess we could just say the fact that they killed Bond at the end of No Time to Die. I was like, oh, they did it! I can't like I yeah. couldn't believe that they did it. That they did what this movie wasn't willing to. I thought was, it's it's an it's a bold choice, and you can also see the parallels between this movie and No Time to Die. I think in a lot of ways too. For sure, I think you know I think there was a really interesting conversation to be had about like how much Nolan's Batman films kind of influenced the Daniel Craig Bond films and then the fact that like Nolan's Batman films were influenced by the Bond films that he grew up with. There's like a really interesting like back and forth conversation between those, uh, those franchises. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. So the movie, so obviously he's off 
with Selena Kyle hanging out in Europe. Good for him. Uh, <laughs> and Wayne Manor is becomes a, a home for at-risk children, which again, that, that movie is just like tearing my heart out at that moment already anyway. I'm just like, oh, because <laughs> Alfred, uh, you know, as I said, Alfred, I failed you and all that. And uh, Blake, a.k.a. Robin, uh, ascending literally in the final shot, setting up to be, I don't know, Batman, Nightwing, something, some version of, of Batman. Would you, in, in any version of any universe, would you want to see another one of these, considering we live in a world where now nothing, no story really ever ends? Or do you, are you really precious about them, you know, retaining this as a beginning, middle, and end uh, superhero story, which is something we are seemingly never getting again? Yeah, I'm I'm honestly like not too precious about it, uh, which I've gotten some like flack for this on on Twitter before. Uh, you know, when I, I was talking about the the possibilities of the multiverse and how I yeah. would love to see Joseph Gordon Levitt's John Blake like as Batman in the Nolan verse and kind of like see, you know, what his adversaries would look like. Uh yeah, I just I don't know. I just I think that there's something really interesting in that. Um you know, also something that really hasn't been done before. You know, we've never really gotten the Batman movie without Bruce Wayne. Um, so yeah, I I would honestly, I'd be all for it if they if they did that. Yeah, cool. All right, is there anything about uh, the Dark Knight Rises that we haven't touched on that you wanted to make sure we mentioned before we start winding down? Um, I think the only other thing that I'd mention is like I love the like character actors in this that just have like small bit parts, like uh, like. Bern Gorman and Matthew Modine, uh, Aiden Gillen, Ben Mendelsohn. Uh, I just think that all those actors are just like really fun, uh, especially like Mendelsohn and Gorman, like whatever they're like Daggett and, and Strivers, like weird, like business partnership relationship and just like their reaction to Bane. Uh, just like so much of that. Like it's, it's, it's kind of funny, but it's also just like amusing. I just, Mendelssohn's especially like you know like where is that that guy and you know whole like speak of the devil and he shall appear yeah and then him getting his his head crushed later and Bern Gorman's character's reaction where he's just like you know shuddering <laughs> and just like holding back tears seemingly uh yeah I just think that those are just like fun you know smaller roles for character actors yeah, and Nolan's always been really good about that in this trilogy, like throwing random people in, in small roles. Uh, but yeah, no, that's a good call. So I, I wanted to ask you, the Dark Knight trilogy specifically, we sort of touched on this, but maybe maybe you have something to add. What is the legacy of this, ver- this version of the Batman franchise? That's a question that would change depending which, uh, which take we're talking about. But I guess Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, what is its legacy, its impact on cinema? Um, I definitely think that it it opened the doors for for reboots. I think that, you know, it really kind of like set the standard of rebooting a franchise. And I think that a lot of studios kind of learned the wrong lessons for from them. Um yeah. you know, I think that we saw a lot of like grounded and, and gritty reboots uh that like, tried really hard to like opt for realism without kind of like getting what Nolan was doing and the fact that, you know, he is still very much aware of like the comic book source material, but like, he also has a clear, he has a clear vision and like clear, you know, 
thematic scope that he wants to explore, which I feel like a lot of other reboots didn't. They just kind of wanted to like try to copy that aesthetic, um, but they didn't really have filmmakers that had like a clear vision of like who the characters were. And so like I feel like across the Dark Knight trilogy, like it always felt that you know even even though like Nolan said that he didn't necessarily like have plans for a sequel in mind when he was making these like ultimately like they do feel really well connected you know thematically and then each entry also has its own uh key theme um but it's just kind of kind of interesting because i also feel that you know it really kind of like set the the groundwork for dc to become kind of like this massive level franchise and like, you know, you have Nolan on man of steel. Uh, and even though that, that, that got mixed reviews, it's just kind of like interesting to see how WB has like, kind of like spiraled out from like reactions to that rather than kind of just like sticking to, you know, uh, a, a particular vision and like having like confidence in like the director's vision, like they did with Nolan you know, it's just been like a lot of just like hand wringing and trying to like figure out why can't they duplicate the success of the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises. And so that's been really interesting to kind of see on the DC side to the point where now, you know, it seems like that they're just going all in on the complete fantasy of it all. You look at upcoming projects like Black Adam or, or Aquaman and they're, you know, so totally different from what from what Nolan kind of established, um, you know, which I think is, is interesting and that's not, that's not a bad thing either. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of interesting how I think with the dark Knight trilogy, like WB had kind of like the perfect tee up to build a universe from that. Uh, and they didn't really like take full advantage of it. I think when we look at, you know, the, the success of, of Marvel now and like how different those films are, from you know the the dc films uh it's like kind of a really interesting like what if they had built a justice league around christian bale's batman mm. uh and you know kept nolan on but in a larger capacity with developing some of these other other characters um but then you also look at the success of like matt reeves batman um you know which is, is separate from from the larger franchise much like much like Nolan's was, and it's kind of like, you know, running on its own, its own vision with Reeves. And I think that that's a really interesting approach as well um, to kind of see like that film, you know, take some of the lessons from Nolan, but then also kind of just like bring it back a little more into uh, the comic book, the comic book world, bring it back a little more into like the psychosis uh, of the characters like i think it's a little more of like an of an internal uh movie than like nolan's you know uh external um kind of epic scope and so i'm interested to kind of see like what reeves does with the franchise going forward and how that kind of compares to nolan's arc yeah I, ahead of the batman i was sort of cautiously optimistic like i i loved what matt reeves did with the planet of the apes films and you know, I'm obviously a huge Batman fan, but I was I was sort of skeptical in that it was it seemed very similar to these films, and I was like, well, how is he making it, his vision distinct? But then when you see it, like it 
it it somehow does. It finds yeah. new corners of these characters that you, you know, you think you know so well, and and creates you know new facets of uh, Gotham City and and the dynamics between these characters. And and to your point about the comic bookiness of it all, uh, these films feel sort of in a similar vein to sort of the '90s run of comic movies where. A hero versus Joker, the Batman versus Joker, Batman versus Penguin, Batman versus Rip, like it's sort of episodic. And what Reeves seems to be doing is, no, they're all out there. They're all in existence. They're all in play and they'll weave in and out of stories yeah. as necessary, which is, again, how DC Comics has been doing it forever. Uh, yeah. But yeah, yeah. no. It's, it's really cool to kind of like see, you know, what Reeves has kind of learned from what no one set up and then also just like how comic book franchises have just kind of like evolved you know since this movie has come out because i mean you know the idea of a cinematic universe like when nolan started with batman begins like was not even a concept and like now you know we see what marvel has done with that approach and then you know we see what reeves is doing where he's like well i'm gonna build like the cinematic universe of like connected TV shows and Batman movies, but just centered around Batman. Mm-hmm. And it's all going to be like, according to my vision, like it's a really interesting, I think like marriage of what Nolan was interested in. And then also what's clearly been working so well for Marvel. Yeah, absolutely. So looking at this trilogy specifically, what is your ranking for the dark Knight trilogy from whatever best to worst, worst to best, whatever you prefer. Um, so, um, my favorite is, is the dark Knight. Uh, still um followed by dark knight rises and then batman begins uh at the end and the reason why is i think that i think that batman begins is better in its storytelling but i think that nolan had become a better director mm, by yeah. dark knight rises i mean like there are just like scenes in the, in the dark knight rises that just like blow me away it's like beyond the opening like plane scene there's just like a a sense of scale and just like scope to it that i think like really just like showed how much he's like grown as a filmmaker uh you know especially like coming off of of inception um so yeah but i mean they're all really close like they're all movies that i give like five stars on 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 letterboxd Uh, i think it's you know there's not one that i feel like is is a is a bad misstep but yeah it's it's hard for me to beat the Dark Knight. I mean, it has my two favorite Batman villains in there, Joker and Two Face. Yeah, and it was just like such a such a huge phenomenon. But yeah, I'd put Dark Knight Rises second, and then Batman Begins third. Yeah, I I, I think for me, there's there's a, a bigger drop off. I think for from the first two to this to this one, but even with that, I you're right that the the the, uh, the directing here and the scope, the things like the uh, you know the stadium sequence, for example are just so mind blowing. And even when I have issues with the narrative, like things like that shine through. So still, would you say this is the the best uh, superhero trilogy so far that we've gotten? I would for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the drop off in the third one, which for me is there, uh, it's still much less of a drop off than from like, Spider-Man 2 to 3 or uh, X2 to Last Stand or Blade right, 2 to yeah. Trinity. Like it's like, Ooh, that that's it's a pretty easy it's pretty easy to call Dark Knight Rises as a superior film of those. Uh but yeah. Well, thank you so much, Richard Newby, for coming on the show. That's that's all I have on the Dark Knight Rises. Tell people where they can find you on social media. 
Yeah, so I am uh, on Twitter. I am at Richard L. Maybe. Um, I post all my articles and stuff that are right there, but you know, you can also go to Hollywood Reporter, AV Club, and you know, just search my name for what I've written there. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed being on the show. I love talking Batman, so thank you again for having me. Yeah, absolutely. You're welcome back anytime. Thanks, Richard. Big thanks to film critic Richard Newby for coming on to discuss 2012's The Dark Knight Rises. As I mentioned, this is the finale of this mega series. So now it's time to reveal the definitive ranking of the Dark Knight trilogy as decided by our guests. Since it's only three films, uh, I will recap what everyone said. So first, Nguyen Lee came on and we talked about 2005's Batman Begins and he had Dark Knight Rises in third place, The Dark Knight in second place, and Batman Begins in first place. So perfect, perfect match of uh, guest and material there. Then we talked to Darren Lundberg of Nostalgia Cast about 2008's The Dark Knight. He had The Dark Knight Rises in third place, Batman Begins in second place, and The Dark Knight itself in first place. And then, as you just heard, film critic Richard Newby and I talked about The Dark Knight Rises from 2012, and he had Batman Begins in third place, The Dark Knight Rises in second place, and The Dark Knight uh, in first place. Uh, as you may know, maybe not if you have never listened to this show before, if you haven't, welcome. Um, we go back and we assign points to every uh, every placement where a guest has put a film. So if it's first place, it gets a one. If it's in third place, it gets a three, etc. And then we tally up what that film has amassed by the end of each person's ranking and whatever has the lowest score wins. So in third place was The Dark Knight Rises with eight points. In second place was Batman Begins with six points. And in first place, with two out of the three guests naming it in the top spot, with four points was The Dark Knight from 2008. As anyone on film Twitter or generally knows, that's, I think, kind of the consensus pick for the this franchise, for this trilogy. Uh, so that didn't surprise me. I was a little surprised how close some of these were. Like, uh, I know it's only three guests, but uh, there seems that there's a little more dissension in the ranking of these films than I maybe would have thought. And so I, I think that's really interesting. Uh, my personal ranking probably would be, I mean, you maybe heard me say this with Richard in the episode, but it would be Dark Knight Rises, Batman Begins, and then The Dark Knight number one. Uh, but as I discussed with Wen Lee on that episode, Batman Begins and Dark Knight, like a hair apart, depending how I feel that day, I... Uh, the Dark Knight generally, I think, edges it out just because I feel like the comic booky aspects of Batman Begins are a little, a little less well handled. So that would be my ranking. But I want to hear what is your ranking of the Dark Knight trilogy? Which of these films do you like the best? Let me know on Twitter. So far, <laughs> Crooked Table, same handle on Instagram, or via email at robert at crookedtable.com. We'll be taking a brief break. Next week, we will not have a new episode. It's Thanksgiving. But on our sister feed, we will have a new episode of Close Watch. The famous Ashley Grant joined me there for Bandits. So that will be going up just before Thanksgiving. So if you're digesting from Turkey on Thanksgiving night, maybe check out that feed over there or go back and check out the archives for Franchise Detours. The following week, this, uh, Friday, December 2nd, we'll be starting a brand new mega series 
delving into the Beverly Hills Cop films. That was the the listener's choice result. We did a poll on Twitter. Beverly Hills Cop beat out Rush Hour for that one. So maybe we'll get to the Rush Hour franchise someday, but Beverly Hills Cop we're getting to on December 2nd, uh, and that will run through most of the rest of December. So stay tuned for that. But for now, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. See you at the next stop, everyone. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little KED.